jump into 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we're going to start walking through this book and seeing how it builds upon Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Um, So the title of my sermon today is a question. And it's this, why God? Not why God, why should you believe in God, but you, or you've heard somebody ask this question directed to God, why God? Why? I don't know if you've ever asked that question. Maybe you've asked it. Maybe you've thought it. Um, It's a question that we might be tempted to ask at different seasons in our lives. Good? (laughs) Good? Like, why, God? Why do, what did I do to deserve this? Or, why, God? What did I do to deserve this? What's going on in my life? Why, God, why? A question that I have heard asked by believers and by non-believers. Uh, a, a big question. And I want you to have that in the back of your mind as we walk through this first chapter of Second Thessalonians. I'm going to jump over the first two verses. It's just Paul's normal introductory greetings uh, written by himself, Silas, and Timothy to the church in Thessalonica, grace and peace, all that jazz. So verse 3. We ought always to thank God for you brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all persecutions and trials you are enduring. We ought always to what? Thank God. Now, Obviously, Paul is thanking God because of the visible fruit being borne out in the lives of the Thessalonians, primarily faith and love as we see here, which is reminiscent of 1 Thessalonians, faith, love, and hope still there, and hope is here too, it just wasn't explicitly stated, as we'll see in a moment. But, but he starts with saying, we always thank God for the results of your faithfulness and your lovingness, but Notice, who is the object, the recipient of this thanks? God. Implying that it is because of God, not the Thessalonians, that they are faithful and loving in such a manner that all of the churches around the surrounding territory have received word of, have been encouraged by, which again is exactly another means of thanks, reason for thanks that Paul gives in First Thessalonians. So we see this repetitive theme right here, which I think is really important. In fact, you're going to see throughout the majority of especially this first chapter in this message today that there's really not anything new that we haven't already talked about in this sermon series, which you might be tempted to think, well, then why don't we just skip over this chapter? And I was tempted to think that as well. But here's what I really believe we need to understand from this repetition we need to thank God for all the things that he has done not us and we need to remember to thank God for the means and the empowerment that he has provisioned us with to continue to live in a manner that is consistent with that which he has made us as new creations we ought 
always to thank God. Paul thanked God a ton in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, in chapter 3, and in chapter 5 when he's given his little shotgun statements at the end of chapter 5, if you go back and read it. He says, give thanks always and pray continually. And you kind of got the marrying of these two in this chapter and in this first verse. He's giving thanks to God. So church, is prayer your first measure your last resort? Are you thankful in every season? All right, let, let's just keep going with this, and, and let's see, the, again, the, the tangible fruit. Uh, he goes on and he says, your, your faith that is growing more and more, and your love is increasing. The increasing and the growing are two very similar terms here. The idea of growing implies an internal, organic growth as of a tree how you see a, a seed that's planted or an acorn, and then it shoots up a sprout and it slowly starts to, to increase and it grows more and eventually it has bark on it and branches and leaves and, and maybe nuts or fruits or whatever it might be. But it's growing from the inside out and getting larger and larger and larger. And that's the idea here that we see of the faith but what's fascinating about this faith is it's not a passive faith. There is biblical precedence for the idea of a, a, a part of faith, as we would understand it theologically, that God imparts to us, that he gives to us. And as we've said, God is always the means for any fruit that we bear, but this particular faith is an active faith that is being produced by the hands, the feet, the eyes, the mouth, the work, the actions of the people of God. And this is what Paul is thanking God for having made available to them that they would, upon the foundation of God, build up. Build up as the church of God. They're taking steps to grow because of who God has made them to be. And then, okay, so this idea of growth, it's active. Faith and love. Faith, it refers to this, this spiritual growth that we see exercised through this external action. And love is a part of this as well. It refers to the outward manifestation of care and concern for others. So they're so intertwined. But what I kind of need to, 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 to paint the picture for contextually is that this growth occurs in the context of persecution. Now, I know I've probably mentioned persecution a lot to you here. And I know you've heard me talk about it a lot, but... I can't not talk about it. Not because I want to talk a whole lot about it, but because the majority of the New Testament is written within the context of a church that's being persecuted. And so it's impossible to run from it. So I, I need you to understand growth of faith and love provisioned by God in his new creation takes place within calamity, within trial, within difficulty, within obstruction within destruction within this idea of difficulty persecution of the people of God growth is taking place okay so let me give you this first point we don't need our circumstances to change we need our actions to Paul doesn't say anything about praying for God to take away the circumstances doesn't. The only circumstantial change that he gives them the hope of is that Jesus is coming. 
But that might happen after you die. So you might live a whole life of difficulty. The only circumstantial change is the second coming of Jesus. So we got to focus on the here and the now and what we do have the power to do. What we have control over. How we can respond to adversity. And that's everything. How do you respond to adversity? How do you respond to persecution as the church of Jesus, the church of God, built upon Him? How do you respond? Suffering is not the exception for some Christians, like in third world countries, where we say, oh, obviously they're going to be persecuted because of the way things are. Now, clearly, they're persecuted in a manner that we do not face, that we need to be thankful for and pray for them about. But what I'm saying is persecution is not just for a select few. That There's only some that are martyred, and we're thankful to God for them, and we can learn from them, but that's probably never going to happen to us. You're not understanding persecution then and in a broad range. It's not the exemption for some Christians. It's our norm. Again, it looks different. It looks very different. So let's just quickly give you a very, very, very quick theology of suffering. Um, when it comes to suffering, God didn't create it. Back to the question, why God, why? Why, why, why are you allowing this? Why, why did this happen? Why does God let this happen and this happen and this happen and this happen and, and not stop this from happening, this from happening, and this from happening? Why God, why? God didn't create it is the first thing that I need you to understand. Suffering you go back to the beginning, it was not a part of God's creation. So, so that's, that's the first flaw if you're thinking, why did God allow this? If he created everything, he didn't create it. Because of sin in the world, suffering entered. But here's where I do believe is something that we miss, even for those of us that believe what I just said, that God didn't create it. I believe God repurposed it because he understands the fallen world that we live in. And we understand now what we need as sin-stained individuals bought by the blood of Jesus, a new creation that's still dealing with that barking dog of our old self that wants to resurface and get us to return to the vomit, as we talked about last week. I believe this is where we as a Westerner mindset individual get it wrong, where we equate suffering, bad, wicked, can't have anything to do with it. With Jesus, there is no suffering. With Jesus, there is no hardship. With Jesus, there are no problems. I hope you're thinking of the verse that I'm thinking. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus said it. Remember, when the world hates you, remember, they hated me first. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in, and you know the rest of it, right? He did it. He's not going to leave you alone. He's going to send you a helper. A helper for what? Walking through difficulty, trial, persecution, tough seasons of life. They're inevitable for us as believers, as followers of Jesus. Suffering as something needed to be avoided at all costs is not a biblical, per, is not a biblical thing. If, in other words, if you're here today to say, I'm, following, I'm here to follow Jesus or I'm following Jesus because I need him to take care of all of my problems. I need him to uproot my life, change my circumstance. Let me read for you what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. He says, 
Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. We radiate, we emanate, we, we are praising God because of our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Do you want to know the only way that you're going to actually lose weight if you're unhealthy? You got to suffer a little bit. It might be in the kitchen. It might be giving up like 10 chocolate chip cookies, a bunch of Reese's peanut butter cups, uh, a ton of, ton of cheesecake, what, uh, what, you know, uh, could be a, a, an unending amount of rice. I love rice, but uh, rice is filled with carbs and you could carb overload. You know, you, it, it's going to take some suffering in the kitchen. But, but I think even a little bit more um, picturesque is it, it's also going to take time in the gym. Um, believe it or not, there, there's a lot of, of studies that are out there that shows the key to longevity in life more so than even nutrition, is exercise. They say the one thing that actually can actually regulate your hormones, your body, food is so essential. You can't have one without the other. But if, if according to scientists, if you were to pick one over the other, pick exercise. You got a lot of unhealthy people that eat really healthy because they're just so inactive. They don't use their bodies. They don't exercise it. Bone density, muscles, all that. So, so what does that look like? Well, let's take weightlifting because that's what I like to do, right? So if, if I want to grow, say, let's say not like, muscles to be big or anything like that, but endurance. I want to build up my endurance like Paul is talking about here, perseverance, the ability to be able to keep putting myself under pressure but not buckle and break between the pressure. I've got to increase the repetition. I need to stay in it, and I need to get comfortable with managing the tension. You have to be under that tension. This is where I believe God repurposes persecution. It's not a part of his plan. But he says, hey, it's part and parcel. The world wants nothing to do with me. I'm light, it's darkness. We're antithetical. So if you follow me, you are going to be persecuted. But I want you to understand, I'm going to, in our common worship language, take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for good. I believe God does that. And I see it all throughout history. I see it throughout the Bible. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in others' lives. He's not going to waste it. If he's saying that, uh, listen, there are times that I can deliver you, but we look at the Bible, we look at history, a lot of times it doesn't. He doesn't just constantly intervene. He doesn't. And that's where you are contending with the question, why, God? Why? Why, why is this happening? There's a host of answers, and this is just one of them. And we need to renew our mindset. This would not be something that was offensive to the believers to hear. They would have understood. It would have been hard. People who are being persecuted put to death because of their faith. But it wouldn't have been something that they thought of would have been an asinine statement. Like, oh, Paul, how dare you? Because if there really was a good and all-powerful loving God like we hear today, that was not a concept that they would have used. They understood God's. God's to be very manipulative, very materialistic, very needy of worship, and they demanded it for their own well-being, which is why Yahweh, the God that we see, Jesus incarnate, is such a different, unique God because he's a God who has no need of anything. And he says, I created you to worship me. It's, it's, it's what you need. It's what you need for your purpose, for your life, for your blessing. You need to worship God. That, that's what this God is, our one and only true God. And he says, I I'm going to take all this stuff in the world and I'm, I'm going to repurpose it for you. 
Um, so again, we, we, we've got to be real. We don't face persecution the way the Thessalonians did, the way people in other countries do today. But you still need to ask yourself, if you are never being persecuted, if, 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 if you're not being put on the spot for the name of Jesus in any way, shape, and form, I don't know, work, friends, if, if you're being asked to participate in something that you know is ungodly, unholy, and you're eventually not asked, hey, why, why don't you do this with us? I mean, I guess it could be that they just don't care, but usually it's indicative of you not refraining from unholy acts. Usually it's you getting back into it, and so you have to ask yourself, am, am, am I ashamed of the gospel just to avoid feeling uncomfortable, just to, just to avoid being honoring of God, you know? So the, it's, it's, it's a broad spectrum, but ultimately it comes down to are, are you willing to trust in God? Are you going to be ashamed of God? And are you going to buckle and are you going to give in? Or are you going to say, God, remove me from the circumstance. God, remove me from the circumstance. God, where are you? Why am I still here? What's going on? Why God? Why? He goes on and he says, I, I boast in you. I love this because this is, this is Paul says, I, I boast in the Lord. But here he's saying, I boast in the Lord because of you. Um, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance. So Paul, going around to other churches in that territory, Macedonia, Achaia likely, uh, maybe even down in Corinth, saying, I'm boasting about you. Like another pastor coming in here and saying, church, glad tidings I had to tell you. My church that I planted over in Timbuktu or wherever, they are amazing. They are serving the Lord. They are giving a lot. They are sacrificing a lot. They're unashamed of the gospel. And I wonder, honestly, like, how would we receive that? <laughs> That's not what this is about, but how would we receive that? Would it be like, hmm, winter's bitter? <laughs> or, or would it be like, praise God, and actually be encouraged by it because these people were encouraged by it. They're like, oh, oh. And again, I think this goes to show how good we have it in the realm of persecution because when people heard that and they were encouraged, it was a sign, hey, others are standing strong in the face of persecution. But if we're tempted to be like, oh, that church is bitter, I, I don't know how hard we really got it, right? And I think that's an important point of application for us to stop and to dwell on that and be like, you know, how much of this faith and this walk and this relationship is about me versus about God? You, are you tracking? Are you, are you here? Okay, good. All right, let's keep going. Verse 5. All this, referring to persecution, is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Okay, so that evidence is what we've talked about. The persecution, Paul's saying, your suffering, your persecution is evidence that God's judgment is right. That's weird. Like, what does that mean? What, what, what is being said here? And as a result of God's right, righteous correct judgment, you're counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Okay, so when we see the word evidence, we need to realize this is a legal term, not just in its uh, translation, but in the original Greek, it's got a very legal connotation to it. So when you think evidence, you're thinking like probably courtroom. 
something maybe on trial or a detective trying to deduce and understand something. And that's exactly what Paul is using to help them understand here, to answer the question, why God, why? Why is this happening? Why are maybe you delaying in your parousia, your return? Why, why are people dying and, and, and not until you come back and all that stuff that we talked about in the last couple of weeks? What is going on? Why? Well, well let, let me fix the story, essentially, that maybe we're telling ourselves in our minds. You, you think persecution is a sign that something's off. But let me tell you, this very persecution is evidence that God is right. In this world, you're going to have trouble. You, followers of Jesus, how do I know if I'm doing it right? How do I know if I'm living for the Lord? Difficulty. Persecution because of the name of Jesus that I walk in, that I bear. It's evidence. You're on the right track. Okay. And then he goes on and he says, he talks about worth. That you will be, as a result of you remaining steadfast in persecution, you are going to be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering, right? Okay, so that, that can get difficult because we read that and we say, well, okay, so, so my, my, my worth in God's eyes and my entrance into heaven, the kingdom of God, it's contingent upon me not denying the faith when I'm persecuted, so it's, it's contingent upon me and my actions? No. It's not what he's saying. Paul is not saying that our worth is contingent upon an act of suffering. He is saying that persecution is an opportunity to, let me say it this way, live in our worth. Remember how the last couple of weeks we've been talking about holiness? God has made you holy, so be holy. It's the same idea here. He has set you apart. He has given you your worth. Two different ideas, but they fall into the same camp of understanding. So uh, one, one biblical scholar said it this way, and I thought it was very good and very uh, sermon-esque. He said, it's your position, so possess it. It's this idea of positional worth in the Lord or positional sanctification, however you want to say it. But if we're talking about worth here, God has counted you worthy because of his death on the cross. You are worthy. You have worth because of Jesus. But now, positionally, I, I like to say walk in it, right? Possess it. It's yours. He's given it to you. So use it. Walk in it. You're worthy. Be worthy. You're holy. Be holy. Walk in it. It's positional and it's like possessional, if that's a word. All right, so, so that's what he's saying there, right? You, you're all tracking with that. Okay, so let's keep going. Verse 6, 7. God is just. Okay, now he's going to really switch gears and focus heavily on the persecutors, the, the, the people who are actually the antagonists here, the people who are causing the persecution. He gave encouragement, understand your worth, where you stand, all that, what it means. Now, verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Okay, so that first descriptor of God in verse 7. God is just. Big word in the theological realm, an important word. Um, let, me, let me give you this point. God will always be consistent with his perfect nature. Always. If we say he's a perfect God, 
then he needs to be internally consistent with himself and externally by his actions. If he's a loving God, he's also a just God, he's a merciful God, he's a patient God. How do all those work together? And really, because I'd love to hear the answer from a, uh, from a personal perspective, because for me, they never work together. I got to usually choose one over the other, um, and I, I'm never perfect with all of them. But God is perfect in all of these, and, and that includes his justice. So then what does it mean when we try to unpack this idea of if God is perfect in his justice, what does that look like? Well, it's going to help you in answering the question, why God? Why is this happening? Um, if in anger, let's say because you're being persecuted, maybe you're sad or maybe you're angry, whatever that feeling might be, frustrated, hurt. If in that anger we say to ourselves, oh, if God really is a perfect God, then why doesn't he stop the evil in the world going on right now? Why doesn't he stop and change circumstances? Circumstances. It's not, it's not me, it's not my actions that I, you have the power to change. It's why doesn't somebody come in and just absolutely disrupt everything? Because if God is all-powerful, then he could. God is just. Okay, let me tell you how that applies to this. Pro I'm going to jump to Romans. Again, um, prior to the portion of Romans that I'm about to read for you, Paul just gave this long list that are descriptive actions and, and, and personality decisions and you name it of sin, sinful natured individuals that choose to live in their sinful nature. And you read that in Romans chapter one, it's a long list, very descriptive of God saying, okay, this is what people wanted based on their sinful choices. And they became idolaters, fornicators, homosexuals, murderers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it says that God gave them over to it. Why would God do that? Is that an idea of God is like throwing his hands up and saying, fine, I'm done with you. I want nothing to do with you anymore. No. In fact, it has to do with the justice of God being very interrelated and doing this dance with the forbearance of God, the mercy of God. So that, that's, that's what we would read in Romans chapter 1, and then you jump to chapter 2, starting in the second verse, and now Paul is addressing individuals who, who say, yeah, those are the sinners. Those are the people that are deserving of the wrath of God. That it's them. They need to be the ones that God wipes out. Kind of these like puffed up Jewish individuals that Paul is addressing here. That they know better and they're the righteous ones. And here's how he responds. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Right? All those things that are mentioned in chapter 1, those sinful acts. It's based on truth. That's true. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Right. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So why did God give them over and is forbearing and patient because you got the wrath, the justice of God to contend with. And, and here, here's the kicker that Paul is identifying when we're so quick to look at those outside of the faith and say, oh, sinners, turn or burn or you name it. Or we don't say that, but we're like, yeah, but I'm good. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm better. He's like, Be careful. Be very careful because you don't understand that that same thing that's in you. 
that, excuse me, that same thing that's in them, that causes all of these different manifestations of outright sinful acts that we can all agree upon is truth, guess what? It's in you too. So let me make this point. If you want God to take care of bad people, then we need to start asking ourselves, who's bad? I don't mean bad like, oh, he's bad. <laughs> cool. I mean bad like bad, wicked, wrong. Because that, that's the point of all this, right? When it comes to the why, God, why, that question has this, this foundation of I know better. And that's what some individuals were saying here. Like, what, what, what's going on with all these sinners outside? Like, what, what's going on? Obviously, they're the wrong ones. We're the right one. Paul's like, really? Is that really what you think? All right, I get it. You're not living that way. And, and, and good, no shame there. But guess what? Why do you think that you're better than them? I had a conversation with a woman in the hospital. I, I, I share this privately with some people, but um, her brother was facing end of life. and She allowed me to sit with her, and we talked for a while. Eventually, she just looked at me and said, hey, you're a chaplain. I was like, okay. <laughs> She's going somewhere with this. Um, I could tell she had an, uh, like something she wanted to get off of her chest and talk about. And she said something that I've been struggling with since COVID started. We used to go to church, all that, but now my husband and I don't. We're kind of facing this existential thought or question. And, and rather than ask me, she just straight up said, like, so here it is. Here's what I believe. I need to stop asking God for forgiveness. I need to forgive God. My ears started to bleed in that moment. It's like, what did you just say? <laughs> I'm struggling to be a chaplain right now, and I want to be a theologian and an apologist right now and just be like, uh-uh. Like, what? And rather than pick apart her or anything like that, I, I just, you know, my, my, my heart goes out to her, and I really was, like, heavy in that moment because I was like, how, how, can you, how can you believe that? Because you're, you're distancing yourself from God. That, that's what it was. It's like, and then she went on and she expounded on, well, look at all the, 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 the babies that are being, you know, killed, not talking about abortion, like third world countries, babies that don't have homes that are starving, uh, murderers that are doing mass shootings and all that. How can God allow that? Why God, Why? And I looked at her, and I wanted to say, but I didn't. I'll tell you what was in my head. Um, you know, Hitler was a baby, right? So should you ki should have killed him. And this is where a whole ethical, philosophical argument can get in. But now we're, we're making moral judgments. We're, we're, we're defining at a point in time when somebody goes from good to bad. Because by default, all babies are good. Or young kids are good. Or just good people are good. So you have one camp, and then you have another camp. Who decides that? Does a court of law decide that? Do your parents decide that? Do you decide that? There has to be a higher power. Because we know there are very many people that can decide how far that line needs to be pushed before you're good or bad. And, and that's ultimately the perspective that we need to really understand when it comes to this idea of justice. Are you the one that knows what is just? Or do you depend on a higher power that you can trust to be perfectly consistent in all of his ways and not to be denying of his own nature and not to argue with himself and not to be against himself? Or do you trust in your ways?
So, who's really bad? Paul says we all are. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So be careful that you don't start pointing a finger at somebody else, saying, oh, they're worthy or they're unworthy. It's for God to decide. Ultimately, what I, I would leave you with is this. While we need to understand the justice of God, the attitude behind such a statement as the one that the woman said to me and many of us might be tempted to, to ask in, in an emotionally charged state of, why, God, why? That, that's you chasing after justice. That's you chasing after your version of what you believe to be just. Here's what I would encourage you. Seek mercy. A wise individual would, would seek mercy because a wise individual trusts the all-knowing, powerful, self-consistent nature of who God is in his justice. Which goes on to what Paul says next. He, he, he goes on in this verse and he talks about uh, the idea of the Lord being revealed from heaven. And this is the word apocalypsis, which we translate as revelation or a revealing of things, a curtain being pulled back. Um, this is still referring to the parousia that we've talked about, this, the arrival of Jesus, his second coming. But I like Paul's specific choice of this word here and how he talks about the fact that, hey, Jesus is coming back, but it's going to be a revelation. There's going to be something that he's going to reveal about himself to you in this moment. And I don't think Paul was being... Uh, random with his selection of words here. I think this has much to say concerning the will, the plans, the power, the ways of God that we might be questioning. And we might be saying, oh, God, why isn't or is or when or how, in what way? Revelation helps us to hold on to hope. This will be revealed to you in his time and in his ways that's why Paul goes back and says, I always to thank God for your faith, trust, and your love carrying out the work of God in the face of difficulty right now when you might be tempted to focus within and say, I know better and I have the answer. So when you're tempted to ask that question, why God? Why God? Why God? I encourage you with Paul's words, wait for the revelation. Wait for the revelation. Jesus is coming, and it will be revealed. All right, he goes on, and he just gives us a very descriptive picture of this coming of Jesus, which we've talked about, the parousia, but I like it here. It, 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 he said he's, he's coming from heaven. He will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Um, so, guys, put, put up that per, uh, first picture for me of the picture of Jesus on the cross, right? So this is the image that we have of Jesus normally, especially in Easter, Jesus on a cross. This represents so much to us. You know, we talked about it weeks ago about what, the, the significance of the cross and the weight of the cross and the fact that it, it's a very ugly representation because that's Jesus, and we look at him and we see he, he became our sin. It's not supposed to be pretty for, for a host of reasons. 
And, and this is a lot of times the image we have. But then the image that Paul is giving us, guys, throw the next picture up for me, uh, the one with Jesus on the clouds, is, is this idea. You know, it's not perfect. I'm not saying that this is what it's going to exactly look like. But it does talk about a rider on a horse with face dazzling, gleaming like a sword coming from his mouth, uh, coming with heavenly hosts, angelic beings to meet us. And we talked about how we're going to meet him in the air. But, but in particular, what I want you to see is this idea of Jesus coming for war. Remember when we talked about wrath and we used the pictures of the lions and you could have that gent that 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 uh, not gentle but that that calm protective but ferocious lion that you know is okay but then there was that other picture of that lion that you felt you were being stalked by that that's this idea we're going to meet him in the clouds but then we're all coming back and Jesus says enough to sin, to brokenness, to persecution. That's when it will end. But he's coming with a sword and he's coming with a heavenly host, with armies, with angelic beings to say it's done. It's over. Game over. So this really has the idea of what has been like used a lot of times in, in army circles of the cavalry has arrived. Have you ever heard that before, maybe in an army movie? The cavalry has arrived where you have foot soldiers that are in the trenches that are just waiting, trying to hold the line until backup comes, and the backup that could come would be the cavalry. Literally, it was men on horseback at one point, but then as you know, technology advanced, we eventually had things like army uh, artillery and tanks, maybe ships, but then uh, real modern cavalry would be aircrafts, now drones, but helicopters, uh, bombers. That would be the idea of cavalry, because when you saw the cavalry, it's done. It's like, we're, we're done. We can't stop that. We can try our best, but we can't stop that. That's this idea of Jesus coming back here. So go back to the other picture for me, the picture of Jesus on the cross. This is Calvary. This is the idea, or this is the image of Jesus at the place of the skull, the place of death, right? Calvary, death, brokenness for us. Go to the other picture. Cavalry. They're not linked in words, but I just want you to see this. I'm having fun with the words. There's this massive difference where we see the suffering servant, the one who was humiliated for our sakes, but he is nobody's fool. He is not a pushover. He's coming back. And, and this is the image that, that Paul is, again, trying to bring to the memory of his readers who are suffering as the suffering servant did, who are being persecuted, saying it will eventually end when he comes back. So hold on to faith. Hold on to love. And this, this is where we see hope. When it talks about the revelation of Jesus, that's the hope that we've been talking about. So even if that word hope isn't explicitly there, this is the hope. He's coming back. Jesus is coming. And what are the implications? Man, our glory. Yeah. Our glory. Yeah. And then for the unbeliever, yeah. trouble of troubles. The utter demise. So remember, vengeance is mine, say I will repay. All right. Let, let's, let's try and wrap this up quickly. Verse 8. Uh, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 
on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. So now we see this, this contrast of like heaviness again because of what it continues to mean for those who don't believe and then the switch back to, okay, but what about us? What about the believers? What about the faithful? What about the followers of Jesus? So he's, he's going to punish the unbeliever who do not obey, who do not know and obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, this is important because this isn't God arbitrarily just hurting people that never heard. This is clearly talking about people who didn't know and obey. It's what follows. You can have all the knowledge of who God is, but if you don't follow his ways, that's where destruction comes. He's given you a priceless gift should you choose to accept it. You got to walk in it. You got to accept it. You've got to be worthy of it. So those who don't know and those who don't obey, uh, it's going to mean something pretty big. He says everlasting destruction. And, and this is something that, again, I think has been too removed from the church. Like, there is eternal glory with Jesus, right? There's eternal glory with Jesus, right? I hope that's your hope. But there is also this important reminder that there is an alternative outcome that is awaiting all those who refuse to trust in Jesus. And we try to say, don't scare people into heaven. And sure, we don't want to scare people into heaven, but people need to be scared of the reality because I ought to be scared. If I'm not afraid that I'm going to be eternally expelled from being in the presence of God, then I got to do some internal checking in, in my spiritual walk. Because if I'm not scared of that, to be with the God who loves me, to want to be with him, if I'm not scared of the fact that I can choose to reject God, I'm not saying be afraid of God and the fact that, you know, he, he's, a, he's a quickly, easily persuaded God to, to change his mind should you do something that he doesn't like. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we need to be afraid of the fact that I can choose to reject the God who loves me. And I can be eternally, eternally expelled from the kingdom of God. Resulting in my demise. Eternal destruction. There is an eternal heaven and an eternal destruction. Literally means to be shut out of his presence. And we can't minimize that. We can't minimize Paul's words here. We can't just breeze past it and say, yeah, but let's get to the praiseworthiness. Let's get to the glory. Let's get to the hope. Let's get to the life. You got to chew on that. I just encourage you to do that. Chew on that. Ask yourself, am I, am I living in the plans and in the purposes of God, or am I willfully choosing just to reject it, deny it, disobey it? But what I do love, again, here is the hope that he brings back. He, he, he uses it kind of negatively. Um, he says those who don't obey the gospel. It's not that the gospel is negative, but it leads to a negative outcome if you deny it. But I love it, gospel. They deny the good news. Good news. Good news for me and for you. What, 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 Emmanuel? What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. The gospel. Eternal destruction. Completely being shut out from the presence of God. God not with us. We can't have anything to do with God. Those who deny the very thing that is the reason for their existence. God. It's good news for us. 
It's good news for all, but how do you choose to view it? And it's upon that word that we need to be a church that is built upon that rock, that foundation, the salvation that is in Jesus Christ, not our idea, not our gospel. Verse 11 and 12, Paul concludes, and he says this, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. God may bring about, we pray, God may bring about your every desire for goodness and your every deed, desire and deed for goodness prompted by faith. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus, uh, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's prayer comes back full circle. I want you by the power of God, to be made worthy. And now he's looking to God. God, continue to make them worthy. You have positioned them as worthy. Now give them the strength to possess that worth, to live in such an obedient lifestyle that says, I have been made worthy. I'm going to walk in that work. I possess it. That's Paul's prayer. But but again, the means, the means. You can't miss the means. How How, how do you continue to to walk in this worthiness it, it's right there you have to walk in it this is why it's it's such a marrying of the two it's such an in step it's it's a dance god is leading but you've got to dance with him in it you can't just be like god pick me up god you just carry me around like a baby's like no i'm leading but we're dancing together I am going to show you the way, empower you, give you all that you need, but you've got to walk with me, be in step with me, with my spirit. This cannot be this passive faith. This cannot be, okay, God, uproot me from my difficult situation, take care of all my problems so that I don't have to face God. It's like, no, but I'm, I'm with you in this. I'm walking you through this, and you will grow. You will grow in holiness. You will grow in your worthiness. Let me close with this, and I want to invite you to stand with me on your feet. This is actually all over the Old Testament, this idea of facing persecution and then, and then calling on the Lord to take care of it. When you're faced with that question, why God, why God, why God, and, you, and now what you're doing is you're blaming God, the one person who is your hope, your salvation, your help, you're trying to blame him for something he did not do, and now you're trying to make him the perpetrator because, oh, he could have helped. Like, come on. Like, reframe that and put, put that in. Would you, would you blame your parents or, or your best friend or your wife if, if somebody really harmed you? Maybe you do, and you shouldn't if they had nothing to do with it, but really we do that to God. And ultimately here, I, I love the words of Jeremiah the prophet. And he is talking about being, being manipulated, abused, and ultimately persecuted because of the prophetic word that God gave him to declare in the king's court and to others around him. He was constantly rejected. He was called the what? Does anybody know? The weeping prophet. Probably a man who had a heavy heart, but also probably had a lot of rejection and difficulty in his ministry. And kept going back and kept going back and kept facing difficulty. And he says this to the Lord. 
concerning those who are against him. But you, Lord Almighty, who judge righteously and test the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have committed my cause. Did you see that? This wasn't a why, God, why did you allow this to happen? It's like, hey, God, you take care of it. Hey, God, you enact vengeance. Hey, God, you're going to be my liberator. You're going to be my justice. You're going to be my savior. That's the right response. That's the right prayer. And so I encourage you here today. If you are carrying this weight of anger because of some really tough stuff that has been perpetrated against you that you did not deserve, really want to encourage you, don't blame God. He is not at fault. And you are doing nothing but hurting yourself in that. I, I can sit here and we've talked a lot about what those answers might look like, explaining a little bit the justice of God and, and, and the purpose of persecution. And honestly, at the end of the day, all of your understanding about it doesn't matter that much. What really matters is, even though I don't, see it you're working even though I don't feel it you're working God I trust you you never stop you never stop working God I trust you you your ways are higher than my ways your ways are beyond my ways God right now I ask that you would you would search our hearts and God if we're holding on to bitterness because of what others have done to us and we're, we're redirecting it at you and we're raising a fist to you. God, would you humble us in this place? Because we need you, God. You are good news. You are life. You are hope. So, God, I pray we would not make an enemy out of you. And if there are others here today that are, that are stuck in that, wake up, O oh sleeper. Wake up, O oh sleeper. Christ is here. He lives in you. Trust in all of his ways. Acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. Don't get mad at him if he doesn't change your path. Don't get mad at him if you don't think that you are where you should be. Make your paths straight. Father, today I, I just ask that you would remind us who you are, your plan, your will, your ways. Father, I pray that there would be a fresh breath of life that's breathed into us by your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would give encouragement to those who are discouraged. Holy Spirit, we need you to intervene in our minds right now hearts and our minds we're, we're I think we're too often too busy missing you because we're so fixated on you uprooting us and changing our circumstances God I pray that we would see you in our circumstances we would trust you in them we would believe in you through them we serve a God that is in control of all things a perfect God in whom there is no fault a just God a loving God, a merciful God, a forbearing God, a gracious God, a right 
God, a God in whom there is no fault, but the truth, the way and the life. Father, be with us as we leave this place. I pray that we would continue to be used by you to build your kingdom. I pray that all of us would recognize our responsibility that we have as we carry you into this dark world and illuminate it. Bless those who are going to deliver the baskets. Thank you for their hands. And in Jesus' name, the people of God said, amen, amen, amen. Hey, God bless all of you.